Scripture reading tonight will be from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he, too, he who promised is faithful. And let wavering free, or, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you say the day drawing near. Yeah. All right. Good evening. Thank you, Donovan. Good to see you all. Hope you had a good day today, enjoying the beautiful weather. Um, we are closing down our teaching series tonight on the way of salvation. And so if there's any of those parts that you've missed, they're uh, available on the internet, or you can call me and I'll preach it to you again. Um, that was funny. It's gonna, that's how it's going to be tonight. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, I want to make sure that you keep fresh in your mind what we were trying to do this entire series, the goals that we were trying to accomplish as we were working our way through what has been commonly called the plan of salvation. Uh, first and foremost, our goal was to do the work that is required of us. Each and every generation that comes along must do their part to think deeply about the way that God leads us to full relationship with Him. And so we can't rest upon the good theology that's been done before we came along and just borrow their terms and use their language and then just move forward as if everything's easy. We've got to do our own work as well, and hopefully we've done that. We also want to restore some depth to some shortcuts and some buzzwords that we've borrowed from generations before us and sort of miss some of the significance to them. Tonight is a very, very important one that we're going to work on. Um, most importantly, we want to convert people that are not actually Christian. Um, want them to think deeply about the Christian faith, examine it, consider it, um, weigh its merit, and then if they are uh, interested, certainly become Christians. And lastly, I've wanted to stir up current believers to the practices that were meant to mark your entire life. So as we've talked about hearing, believing, confessing, repenting, and then dying to self to come alive to God through the waters of baptism to start with and for the rest of our life, those things were meant to actually mark your entire life as you live. You were meant to be a person by faith, hearing, believing, um, confessing, repenting, and dying to self. And so tonight we're going to finish um, with the thought of faithfulness. What does it really mean to be faithful? Uh, that's kind of the, the last sort of piece that people usually tie together when we speak about the plan of salvation or the practices of salvation is you and I need to be people that are classified, as Scripture says, as faithful people. We need to be faithful. Well, uh, the text that we've chosen to study out of tonight, Hebrews 10, 19-25, is going to do two things for us 
around this idea. The first thing that the text will do for us is actually define what real faithfulness is. The second thing that it's going to do is actually display what faithfulness looks like for us to live faithful. You know, it's kind of interesting when you start throwing around the term faithful, you really have to ask yourself, what does it mean? What, what does it really mean? When you describe somebody or hear somebody as described as faithful, what comes into your mind? What pops into your mind if I were to say, so-and-so is faithful? Or you were to say, I want to be faithful. This is a term, the idea of being faithful, that needs our work on it. It needs some depth to it. You know, typically it's a status that was applied to a person that maybe engaged in good works, had faithful church attendance, had an upstanding moral life, and so we would apply that term faithful because they have adhered to maybe a particular moral code, some church activity, and maybe they do some things that are um, for the kingdom of God, and we've given that label faithful. Really, those descriptions are the fruit of a person who's faithful, but they're just the fruit, they're not the seed. And so for us to become actual faithful people, we can't just borrow fruit from other people and just mimic that fruit because you can have good church attendance. You can have a moral ethic that guides your behavior. You can actually even participate in good works and all the while have no inclination, no heart that desires God or is genuinely appreciative of the work of Jesus Christ and a heart that doesn't actually trust the work of Jesus. So you can engage in all these things and not actually be a person who is faithful. So what does it mean to be faithful? What is the root of faithfulness? It's really actually easy, and I don't mean to insult any intelligence, but this is the best way I've ever heard it defined. Faithful is literally a person who is full of faith. Saturated, full, completely to the top with a heart that trusts the person and work of Jesus and no longer trusts themselves or something else. You know, all of us are on the path of journeying to try to find something that makes us better, right? And so the option is, what are you going to trust and who are you going to trust? And so a faithful person is a person that is fully trusting the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 19 through 21. I wish we had time. This is great and beautiful language that the writer is going to use for us. It comes from the Old Testament temple language um, about how people were interacting with God in those days. The holy places were the holy of holies is where God met the high priest once a year and where God dwelt. Um, and so he says here this in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, he's talking about your salvation you and I now have the confidence or the assurance to enter into the dwelling place of God, to be with God. That's what salvation is. No longer having anything that keeps us separate from God, we can enter into that place. Now here's how. You and I can enter into that holy of holies where God now dwells by the blood of Jesus Christ, by, a new and, by the new and living way that Jesus opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, He's going to tell us what to do here in a moment. But do you notice what He's hovering around? That you have this, you can have this deep abiding confidence and assurance, which is faith, complete trust, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, 
which gives you confidence to enter the place where God dwells. That's salvation. And all of that hovers around a fullness of faith in Jesus Christ. So that being said, that's the, that's the remedy to salvation is that you fully trust that you can't do it on your own, that the work of Jesus Christ was enough for you. So what does it mean then to live as a person who is confident in the work of Christ and lives full in trusting that? What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew writer is going to give us three ways that this works itself out in our lives, and it works out pretty well for us to see it. Um, this confidence that we have actually affects the way that we live in three areas of our life. The three main areas that you actually interact with people and beings in your life. Faithfulness marks the way that you first interact with God. Being full of faith in Jesus Christ will change the way you interact with God. Having full faith in the work of Jesus Christ will change how you interact with yourself, number two, and it will change how you interact with other people. There's three points here. You see three times the Hebrew writer said, let us. I studied that deeply, and most of the scholars that uh, I read, you know, well-educated, Princeton, Harvard, really smart people, have come and they've studied the original language, and they call this the salad text because he calls it lettuce over and over. Okay, that's two for two. These are bad tonight. That was totally joking, scholar. No, it's not salad, but just kidding. Three times he says the phrase, let us. What does that remind you of? Where have you heard let us before in the Bible? Genesis chapter one? When God in creation, in a world not hindered by sin, God was inviting, he would say, let the earth bring forth the beasts of the field. Let the water bring forth the fish. And then when he came to interacting with us, humanity without sin, he would say, let us make man in our image. What the Hebrew writer doing is really reformatting Genesis chapter 1 to invite us back into a relationship that is not hindered by sin with God. And he's going to tell us three ways that we can be invited into what faithfulness really looks like. How we interact with God, how we interact with ourselves, and how we interact with each other. Those are the three. So let's start with God. Verse 22, listen to the command. Here's how you can be faithful in your interaction with God. And as we walk through these, you're going to see that there's a command, there's a warning that we need to watch out for, um, and then there's ultimately a, a promise that we can trust. As we work through these, you'll see them working themselves out. But he wants us to be faithful first and foremost towards God. Now, out of all the things that God could tell us to do, right? Now you're a Christian. You're my child. You're my ambassador. You're the light to the world. There's a host of things that God could tell us to do. And the one command that he hovers around for us to be faithful people is this. Let us draw near to him. Draw near to God. Come close to God. Don't avoid God. Be near enough to speak with Him frequently. You see, this is the root of all of your faithfulness to God is if you actually come close to Him. The faithfulness to God is not just rapid behavior, doing certain things that you might consider to be for the kingdom of God and having no association with God. You see, all of those behaviors, those activities, those services will work themselves out as you draw near to God. You see, here's what changes. When you go from, when you're not a Christian, when you're not a believer in Christ, 
The way that Satan keeps you away from God is making God unappealing to you. God is stifling. He's going to ruin your fun. You shouldn't pay attention to him. He doesn't have the truth. He doesn't know what he's talking about. These are all the reasons that non-believers stay away from God, that God is not attractive. But the moment you see Jesus Christ for who he is, and he as the presentation of God becomes attractive to you, Satan no longer can keep you apart from God because of his attractiveness. So he's got to change. And here's how he does it. Here's his new deception once you become a Christian. All of a sudden, since now you find God as someone you desire, someone you want to be close to, what he's now going to do is convince you that you're not good enough to come near to God. And this will cause us to do one of two things. Either you will avoid God altogether. So you might get busy in church work. You might get busy in a moral life, but you might have zero prayer life. You might not actually go to God with all your concerns, your fears, your anxieties, your worries. You might not actually ever talk to him. You might just be busy in a bunch of moral, ethical church work and have nothing to do with God. You might avoid him. The other way that we do is that we try to approach God with our spiritual trophies. Drawing near to God, not with the blood of Christ, not sprinkled clean by Jesus, but with our own merits, being like, God, am I good enough to come to you now? Look at all the things I've done. And the problem with that is you'll never really do enough to feel like you can approach God. The one command of faithfulness to God is to constantly, never stop drawing near. Don't stop coming close to God. And there's a condition on this. Do you notice carefully the condition of verse 22? Let us draw near how? One condition. With a true heart. There's only one condition. When God says, I want you to draw near, I want you to come to me, He says, I want you to come only with what is true about you. A true heart. A heart in the Greek language was not like the way we see the romantic version of heart. It was the will, the inside of a person, who they really are, their personality, what's true about them. And so when God says, you need to draw near if you're going to be faithful to me, draw near with a heart that says what is true about you, telling him the truth. And so that means we come to God with our fears, our anxieties, and our doubts. We tell him about those things. God, I'm anxious about this. I'm worried about this. I'm afraid of this happening. We come to God with our greed and our pride and our covetousness. God, I really want this to happen. And I know that it's my pride. I know that, that I want this thing to happen or this not to happen because of my greed or my covetousness. I'm jealous about this, God. You draw near and you tell him what's true about you. You come to God with your anger, your bitterness, your disappointment when you're frustrated with them, when you're frustrated with how circumstances are going, when you're frustrated with people, you actually draw near to God with a true heart, meaning you tell him what is true. God, I'm angry. I'm feeling bitter about this. I don't want there to be a root of bitterness in me, so I need to tell you how I'm feeling about this right now. And you draw near to God with your gratitude, your praise, and even your questions. And if you'll draw near and never stop drawing near, with a heart that tells God the truth, you'll find a level of faithfulness that will change your life. Now, how do you draw near? Because that's kind of scary, right? To constantly tell God everything that's true about you. You know, I'm convinced that we would enjoy our prayer life so much more if we understood this truth. That what God wants is for us to draw near and just tell Him what's true, with a true heart. And here's how you're going to do it. He says, with a true heart, 
that has full assurance of faith. You won't draw near until you understand the magnitude of the work of Jesus. That His blood, that His flesh tore down the curtain that blocked you from God and His blood washes you clean so that you can actually enter into the presence of God. That by His perfect work, you're able to go to God and tell Him actually what's true about you and going on in your life. It's a beautiful thing. I think we would enjoy prayer so much more. But, you know, there's actually something deeper that keeps us from telling God the truth about us. And this is where you've got to do your own private work on this front. This is as much as we can really tell you from the pulpit. And you've got to go home and decide if you want to really do this work and see your life really change. But here's something deeper that keeps you from telling the truth about God. Not just you not knowing about Jesus, because you can know that. But not telling truth to God oftentimes happens because we don't tell the truth about ourselves to ourselves. The person that you lie to the most is you. The person that I deceive the most, most often, is me. And so we have such a difficult time telling the truth about our feelings, our life, our experiences, our goals, our desires to ourselves in fear of those things. And so here's what he's going to deal with on that front. You see, he actually is trying to anchor you back to not just the empowerment to go to God and tell him what's true, but he's going to anchor you back to your salvation and specifically what you received at your baptism. Notice the last phrase here. He says, we, we draw near with a true heart full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Bodies washed with pure water, what happens on the outside, but notice what happens on the inside. He says your hearts in that moment were sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's what takes place in a spiritual sense on the inside. This sprinkling is an Old Testament reference. It's what they did in the Old Testament when they prepared the place for, uh, for, for God to meet, the tabernacle of the temple. They would take blood and they would sprinkle in the tabernacle so that it would be set aside so God could come there and meet with them. Then they would sprinkle the utensils that were to be used in the tabernacle, dedicating them to the service of God. And then they would sprinkle the, the covenant, the commandments, and the people to seal the covenant, the sprinkling. That's exactly what was happening inside of you at your baptism. You were being prepared for God to dwell in you. You were being dedicated to His service. And you were being sealed with the covenant of Jesus' blood. That He is your God and you are His child. That's what happened at your baptism. And all of that happened by not only what was being done to you, but what was being taken out of you. You see, he says that he got rid of something in you, your evil conscience. Now let's try to understand that. The, the best way to understand this is first to reverse those words, okay? So when he says that he wanted to take out of us to get rid of an evil conscience, what he's saying is he wants to get out, get out, out of us a conscience, that, that's our awareness of both spiritual and moral things, this awareness that there's something more than just physical life, that we're not just natural beings, that there's something spiritual to us, that's our conscience. A conscience that considers and thinks about evil is what he wants rid of. And this has depth of meaning. Let me give you the two things this means. First of all, he wants your inside to stop thinking about doing evil. But he also wants your inside to stop thinking about the evil that's been done to you. You know, the Greek word evil is where we get the, the, the English word for pain. 
like you would use a woman giving birth, the pain that she goes through, that's what the word evil means. And when he says your heart was sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, what he is doing is not just saying, don't think evil anymore and do evil to people. He was saying, you can let go of the evil that's been done to you. There's a God that understands being tortured at the hands of evil. And he says, you can come and tell me. You ever heard that old phrase that hurt people hurt people? You ever heard that phrase? What it means is that people that oftentimes wound other, others and hurt them, say mean things to them, maybe do vindictive, manipulative things to people, are actually the people that are most hurt in this world. Hurt people are the ones that hurt people. And what he's saying is the blood of Jesus Christ has such a beautiful depth and, and, and healing to it that it doesn't just take your mind off of doing evil things, but it does that by freeing you from the evil that's been done to you, the hurt that you've experienced. And so he is opening up this way to come back to God and not just express all of the fears and doubts you have, but the hurt that you have. And as you pour that out, understanding the blood of Jesus Christ, it begins to sprinkle your conscience to let go of all the pain, the suffering, the heartache, the disappointment. All of a sudden, you start being free to stop hurting people, to stop doing evil to people. Does that make sense? Jesus Christ, through His blood and His flesh, has called you, has made a way for you to come back to God and made the safe space for you to finally tell the truth to yourself and finally confess it to God. You won't stop thinking about evil until you let go of the evil that's been done to you. You won't. And the blood of Jesus Christ is trying to transform you. This is what salvation really is, true and deep. And so the first command is to draw near to God with a true heart that is sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. The second one is this. So that's how we are faithful in our relationship to God. Here's how you're faithful in your relationship to yourself, how you relate to yourself. The second one is this, verse 23. Let us hold fast our confession of hope. You see, the entire theme of the book of Hebrews is you need to hold on to, don't let go of, don't let it out of your fingers, the confidence that you have in Jesus and the confession you've made about him. Don't ever let go of those things. You see, we tend to actually drift away from that. The longer you go in Christianity, we tend to kind of get more nuanced in our faith, to think more critically about it. And sometimes we can forget the very foundation that we stand on is that you and I, without Jesus Christ, are lost. And He is the ultimate source of our love, joy, peace, hope, satisfaction. He is that. And at our confession, we said, it's Him and Him alone that I want that will fill the hole, the void in my life. But as you go on, you and I will drift from that if we don't make this confession daily. We'll either drift into legalism, going back into trying to prove ourselves to God, or we'll drift into license where we just don't worry about it anymore. But what he's saying is that faithfulness to ourselves, to God, requires faithfully confessing what our only true and ultimate hope really is. You see, all of us actually live with hope. Hope is the motivator, the engine. You might not always be able to identify what you hope for, but you actually stop living life when you stop having hope. And some people seriously stop their life when they lose hope. Hope is what drives us. But we quickly, here's how Satan works. We quickly become deceived by Satan now, just not, not just to give up hope, but to make things that are not God 
our ultimate hope. We drift into this. And that's why when things that are not God become the thing that we ultimately hope for, we live with fear and worry and anxiety and frustration and jealousy because we're worried that the thing that we want won't actually come to us and give it to us. So here's how you can identify. Let me give you some tips on how to identify if you are hoping in something more than your ultimate hope, Jesus Christ, and letting go of your confession of your hope. Here's how you identify. First of all, the conclusion of a hope that you finally realize is rest. What I mean by rest is that deep breath of, whew, finally made it. Similar to like if you have a hope for a vacation and you're driving hours and hours, maybe you're going to the beach and that feeling you get when you finally pull in, you know, not that first bridge that tricks you at the beach you know I'm talking about, you're still like 31 miles away and it's like, the, the second one when you're finally there and you get into the hotel room and you finally made it that we're here. So here's the question. What's the one thing in your life that you believe that's in front of you? That once you have it, all of your life will totally be okay. Everything will fall into place. That's the quickest way you can identify a hope that is bigger than Jesus Christ. For some of you, it may be like a job. Like, I just know that when I get this job, all this other stuff, these circumstances will work themselves out and my life will be better. Once I get this job. Maybe it's a relationship um, that if I can just fix this relationship or if I can actually have this relationship that I want or if I can get rid of this relationship, if I could just fix this person in my life or get this person in my life, then whew, everything will be fixed. I'll be fine. Maybe it's a financial status. I'll never forget at a reception of a wedding one time I did that this father told me after 35 years of anxiety, he said, I woke up every morning at 4 a.m. and I couldn't sleep. I had to rush to work. I was so anxious that my kids were going to need something that I worked two, three, four jobs to have enough money because I was so afraid. And he goes, finally, I just take a deep breath. And I go, how can you relax now? And he goes, I guess I just have enough money now, I think. I I can just relax. But even money can't fix that. One slip up in the stock market and it's changed. One major medical crisis, it's all gone. One death and you can't do anything with it anymore. Maybe for some of you, it's your body image. When my body finally looks this way, then I'll be okay with myself. Maybe it's a health problem that you just can't get rid of. See, whatever it is, ask yourself, what is the one thing in my life that if I had it, I'd be okay? Or if I got rid of it, I'd be okay? And that will begin to identify things that you're hoping in more than Jesus Christ. And when those things which are not God become your ultimate hope, your life will never be in balance. It'll be out of balance. These good things in your life, like maybe weight loss or a job or a relationship or money. These are good things. When they become ultimate things, they can't hold the pressure of God. They can't sustain it because they will disappoint you. There's never enough money, a healthy enough body, a right relationship that will finally not disappoint you. There isn't one. Nothing but God can uphold that weight. You are meant to enjoy the gifts of God, but the moment you make them God, you won't enjoy them anymore. In fact, you'll demand of them perfection. They'll always disappoint you. That's the masterful trick of Satan when it comes to your hope. As he takes these beautiful, good things that God gives you, and he says, you ought to make that thing God. If that thing approves you, you'll be happy. If that thing comes to you, you'll finally be satisfied. And you have to violently hold on to the confession of your ultimate hope, Jesus Christ.
Do you know that it's his love that you've always really wanted? It's his approval that you've always longed for. It's his presence that really will bring you peace. It's that that will ultimately satisfy your soul. And so to be faithful means, first of all, that you draw near to God with a true heart and you hold fast with your confession of hope. Now, these two sound great, especially for our Western uh, American culture ears. We love religion that is individual. We love it. In fact, we want personal salvation. We want private, quiet, devotional time with God in the morning. We want to read books about God that have to do with just me. But the problem is he gives us a third one here that has to do with you being faithful to God. He says it's how you treat and deal with other people. Do you see the third let us? 24, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another more as the day you see approaching. Consider one another. Think deeply about each other. This is the third way that you practice what real faithfulness having full faith in the work of Jesus, how it changes your life, that you begin to think about other people, how to help them have love and good works in their life. There's two really important implications in this. First of all, that there are many, if not all of us in our fellowship, that still need to develop in love and good works. We are abounding in people, all of us, in some way, shape, or form, need to grow in agape and love and beautiful good works in the Jesus Christ. All of us. So we're all there in that position. The second thing is, it's very difficult to do. You see, actually, this is the one that has the most explanation, and it has the most warnings to it. That's why he said the word consider. That means to think deeply, to contemplate, to ponder. So when you see somebody who is maybe bothering you or rubbing you wrong, or maybe just not living right, the answer is to consider them deeply, to think about them, to pray about them, to consider the options and the outcomes. And so... The question is then, how do we do this? And he tells us one way, one thing not to do and one thing to do. And how we practice being full of faith in the work of Jesus Christ. The first thing that you don't do is abandon them. Whew, isn't that where Satan tempts us? Just let it come into your mind, somebody that you just really want to change. Somebody that needs help. Boy, isn't the temptation strong just to abandon them? That's what that word means, don't forsake the assembly. I know we've kind of used that word to be like, you need to come to church, you know, all the time. And that's what it means, you know, you you need to be here. But it's more than just, you got to get in this place so Gene will check you off the list and we're good to go. It's way more than that. This word means, don't forsake, meaning do not, as if you were in war, seeing somebody on the battlefield in need of help, turn your back on them and walk away. Don't you dare do that. If you are full of faith in the work of Jesus Christ, you will never leave somebody behind. He says, don't do that. Don't forsake them. Don't abandon them. Um, It means to see somebody in need and choose to not abandon them. That's what he's trying to get at. And so if you spend enough time with Christians, you'll see how much growth all of us have left to do. This is one of the arguments that non-Christians make about how why they don't want to be a Christian. But really, we're saying, hey, that's what we're all about is helping each other. And it's usually, not to go off into this, but I'll give you this to think about, it's usually the people that frustrate us the most who are the ones that remind us of ourselves the most. So you find ones that are rubbing you most wrong, that are causing the most friction, what they're usually doing is bringing to the surface the areas that you still have rough areas. You're not a smooth stone yet. You're still having friction. 
And it's usually revealing ways that you are aware that you need to grow as well. And the thing is this, do not forsake them. Do not abandon. Don't bail. Don't ignore them. Don't avoid them. That would be not having faith in who Jesus is and what he has done. What do we do? He says to encourage them. Now this needs some explanation as well. This word is the same core Greek word that Jesus used in John talking about the Holy Spirit, paraclete, and that John used speaking about Jesus in heaven advocating for us with the Father, the paraclete. Same word, parakleo, same word. And what that means is to actually come near to somebody and to call them up, to be very near to them. That's your instruction, to draw near to them. It means to be very, very close and near and call them. The way you encourage and stimulate somebody to love and good works is to be close to them, to think about them, to know them well, to understand their struggles, and then answer for them and help them bring their life to a different place, more like the love of Christ and the life of Christ and love and good works. You see, this requires tenderness, thoughtfulness, creativity, and maturity to see what they could be. You know when James says that out of our mouth we bless God and we curse people? Remember that statement in James 3? What that means is when you bless God, it means that you are saying what is true about God and to curse somebody is to see what's evil in them and to speak to them that that's their identity. You are evil. What you're doing, that's who you are. And he's saying, no, these people were made in the likeness of God. To bless somebody is to look past what's evil in them and to affirm and, and encourage them to live what's true about the likeness of God in them. That takes incredible maturity in us to do that. It requires deep understanding of what Christ has done for us how long and painful that process has been. In Matthew 7, when Jesus told us not to judge, you know that statement there? He said, how can you do that, take a speck out of somebody's eye if you've got a log in your eye? He never said not to take specks out of people's eye. He said, first take the log out of yours. And if you'll do that, you'll understand the tenderness it requires to take something out of your eye so that when you go to help somebody get something out of their eye, you don't just jab them with the tweezers. You're tender, you're soft and you help them. So here's my question as I finish this up. Why would that consider one another to bring them to love and good works? Why does that component have anything to do with my fullness of faith in the work of Jesus? I don't understand, maybe. It's kind of strange, right? I think the answer is maybe a little bit more simple than we give it credit for. I think there's no other way to deeper faithfulness in the work of Jesus and to help somebody else come closer to Him. You see, as you work through the immense challenge of laboring with somebody, the intense long-term work of helping people grow and caring for them, you'll begin to understand the kind of work that God has put in with you. You'll start to see it. And as you hold on, choosing to not forsake these people in your life, but to stay there with them, not to abandon them, but to be with them, you'll, you'll be reminded that Christ said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And I believe it will stir within us a depth that will increase the gratitude and love that Christ has had for us when you remember that on the cross, He said, my God, my God, the only time He called Him God, not Father, why have you forsaken me? That He experienced something like that so that you and I would never have to do that.
And that will only stimulate and stir within us a deeper trust in his work. So what is the path of salvation? The answer is always faith. Faith in the personal work of Jesus. And out of your faith, you will begin to hear differently. You'll start to believe what's true from God and not other people. You'll confess openly what's true about yourself and what's true about Christ. It'll begin to change you, causing you to repent, having your mind, your heart, your will change, and then your behavior change. And you'll begin to die more and more to yourself because you found somebody that is way more trustworthy than you, who loves you more than you love you who begin to draw you closer to the one who can save you. The one you were meant to always be in fellowship with, God. And as you live your life being faithful in what he has done, you'll find, I think, what he means by salvation. We're here to help if anybody needs that. You can come as we stand and sing.